Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science, the summer series. My name is Claire and I hope you've been having a great summer and I hope you've been enjoying some of, well, what I think are the best of the best Lost in Science stories from 2021 that we've been pulling together for you. So these are the stories that we think should be getting another go on the airwaves and this week on the show... I have a couple of excellent bits of science for you. First of all, we're heading back to October when I spoke to forest ecologist and researcher Tom Fairman about the huge effort that he was part of to save mountain ash forests. Um, And this was done by reseeding thousands and thousands of hectares of the mountain ash forest after the black summer bushfires. And like all good lost in science stories, there is some incredible applied science, but there's also some helicopters involved. So uh, definitely stick around for that. And then we head back to March last year with Stu, um, who's going to take us through one of lost in science's favorite subjects, human cloning. Everyone loves a good human cloning story. And this is some research that was published last year from Monash University, um, where the headlines were a little bit misleading. Researchers had claimed to have cloned a human embryo. Hmm. Hmm. Did this really happen? Or uh, is there a bit more to it once you read the article? Well, definitely stay tuned because Stu has a bit of uh, science to take us through, um, as does our guest Tom Fairman, and on with the show. Black summer bushfires devastated so many diverse forest ecosystems across Australia. But can these ecosystems bounce back? And are there ways that we can help support them in the process? Future fire risk researcher, Dr. Tom Fairman from the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne, has been working with the Victorian government to support some of these forests in their regeneration and is here to talk to us all about what he's been doing and what's been happening. Tom, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello. So, Tom, let's start maybe rewind, go back to the Black Summer bushfires. How badly were the sort of, you know, forest ecosystems, and I guess the ones you were looking at, the alpine forests and the mountain ash, how badly were they damaged? Yeah, so I suppose the alpine forests, and I'll be talking mainly about the alpine ash forests in particular, there's probably about 500,000 hectares of that forest type in Victoria. So that's alpine ash and mountain ash. And in the black summer bushfires, 
probably about 80,000 hectares of that, those two forest types were burned. And that was predominantly the alpine ash forest type of that. You know, that's close to about 20% of mm. its entire range. So, And what do we know about the resilience of the um, alpine ash forests? Yeah, so, and I guess this is the thing. We, we often, when we're talking about bushfires, we talk about the one fire. And, I mean, it's understandable because it's an it's a emergency. You're, you're fighting the fire as it's happening and you're, you're directing all your attention to that. But what's really important when we're thinking about forest types and vegetation communities is obviously what we call the fire regime, which is the longer-term view. So what's particularly important to consider with Black Summer and these forest types is... In Victoria alone, in the last 20 years, we've had a huge amount of fire. So Black Summer was big, but it was about the third fire in the last 20 years that was over 1 million hectares in size. So Mm. what you're having is, um, you know, one fire can be okay for vegetation communities and forests, but then if you're starting to have them pile on top of one another, that's when you really start to uh, notice shifts. So Mm. to talk about alpine ash forests specifically in that context the the technical term for those these types of forests are obligate cedar forests so what that means is they're obliged to seed is the way (laughs) about that yeah in the the technical sense but what that means is when they get burned by a high severity fire the mature trees die and they have their seed in the canopy and as they die they obviously dry out and seeds drop from the canopy and the forest basically regrows from seed. Right. The real concern here, though, is when those seeds are regrowing into trees, they aren't producing seeds themselves for about 15 to 20 years. So They aren't producing seeds. No, they aren't. Right. So what that basically means, if a fire comes back within that 15 to 20 years, then um, it's a really serious issue for that forest because they're no longer able to regenerate and you have portions of the landscape where this forest type effectively disappears. And why is this forest type so important in the Victorian landscape? Well, it's a really iconic forest type for one, so I suppose it's worth starting that way. If I were to say to you, you know, imagine a beautiful eucalypt forest, um, for a lot of Victorians and probably Melbournians, and you would imagine something like the Black Spur, which is just outside of Hillsville, and that's that really iconic road where you're driving through this towering forest, you know, it's that sort of cathedral Mm. shape. That you know they they can grow to be ninety meters tall, hundred meters tall, which is putting it in the wow. categories of the tallest trees on the planet. You know, outside of just the aesthetics of it, they're really beneficial in terms of the amount of carbon that they store. So it's obviously you know in the context of climate change, that's pretty important. They provide habitat to a range of species, and they also you know they're they're valued for um, their their timber products. What does happen to them does matter because they have pretty serious consequences to a range of range of issues. You were talking about sort of like, you know, um, the frequency of fires and if, you know, you have these juvenile ash that um, encounter fires too soon, then, you know, they won't, they won't seed. So what are the, what are the potential sort of ways that, um, that these forests can go and change after these um, recurrent fires? What, what ends up happening to them? Well, yeah, so, so let's, they've been burned by one fire. And let's say they were burned, you know, in the Black Summer bush, uh, sorry, the Black Saturday bushfires 10 years ago or whatever. They've, they're, they're coming back. They're growing. They've, they've turned into sort of thickets and saplings. They get burned again by a high severity fire. So they get basically cooked, you know, 
of all of those stereotypical images of how you know bad looking post fire environments this is sort of the, the the stereotype of them they're completely blackened they've lost all their leaves and they've had no seed to put on so they haven't set any seeds so they're gone basically that species is no longer there and what basically happens is that it transitions to a different type of ecosystem what will come back is some understory species that have either been able to mature faster. So you'll have sort of shorter, shrubbier, like wattle mm. species that come mm-hmm. back. And in some areas, you don't, they won't come back either. You'll just have a transition to sort of more of a grassland looking thing. So this is why it's quite a significant issue. If you're thinking about the biggest shift you can have between a forest type that could be 90 metres tall, mm. you know, that cathedral kind of look of a forest transitioning to effectively grassland like it's a real it's a real serious it's a very serious change and um yeah it's happening now <laughs> and um it's it's something to be um definitely aware of more than aware also um active in trying to mitigate this effect i guess um which leads me to the project yeah. that um, you've been involved in to reseed some of these forests. Can, can you talk to us a little, about, a little bit about what's involved in reseeding these forests? So basically what happens, and I have to say this is like what happened over Black Summer with these forests where they got impacted like this. It's not the first time and thankfully we have a lot of skills and people who have worked in this exact problem before. Mm. So it means that myself included and many other people who were working on this issue, as soon as the fires were burning, we were basically looking to where it was burning into these young forests and pretty much tallying up the number of hectares as it was happening and going, okay, this is going to be a bad year and we know where we're going to have to go from here. And so a range of myself and other foresters that were sort of working on this general program Effectively, what you have to do is you have this really tight window after the fires have burned through an area where you have to pretty much get the seed, stored seed. So you do artificial sowing, basically. So you're using helicopters and fixed-wing aircrafts to put seed into those aircraft and go over the landscape and you're effectively, well, you're sowing sowing with those um, ash forest species type. So I guess you're not getting the seed from Bunnings. This is no. seed that's been <laughs> collected. Yeah, how does, how does that, that process work? So, so it comes from a range of sources, uh, and, and in this particular operation it came from a range of sources. Some of it was collected as part of general kind of timber harvesting operations, and the Department of Environment as well has sort of an emergency supply seed stock that they were storing. So... There were these effectively seed stocks that were thankfully in existence when it was realised that something had to be done about it and basically those seed stocks were accessed. The downside of it was the amount of seed that was available was never going to be enough to cover the amount of forest that was actually impacted. And so while everyone sort of scrambled together to organise this massive operation, Mm. it still meant that it was probably only just under half of the total area that was impacted was able to be re-sown. So, I mean, this is a bit of a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing. It's like at least half or, you know, but only mm. half. That's the biggest operation of this type that's ever been done in Victoria. And it was wow. almost, you know, I remember having a few meetings with people where it was almost like, you know, are we going to get this done? <laughs> you know, are we yeah. going to pull this off? And it's incredible that it was something that was able to be done. 
Yeah. And like you said, there's a very narrow window of time to yeah. be able to do that. At that point in time, you're running against snow and you're running against vegetation regrowing. So for alpine ash, what you have to do is you have to get the seed on the ground before midwinter because you the seed itself needs a, a cue to germinate from mm. the cold because it normally grows in alpine areas. Um, so you need to, you're basically rushing to get it out of the helicopter before um, the snow falls. So the fires, you know, were going until February or so. So you had between February and July to organise this massive operation. And the other part of that as well is after winter, you have the spring growth of whatever's going to regrow in those areas mm. and you can't sow seed out of a helicopter onto something that's already been colonised. So it really was a, a race against the clock to get that stuff out and as much as you can in that time. In preparing for the future now, do you think is 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 there more of a push to increase the amount of seed from these forest types uh, that we keep on hand? So the Victorian government, when the, the seed stocks were exhausted effectively by this effort, and so the Victorian government made a bit of a concerted effort, and it's still under on its undergoing to collect tons and tons of seed um, to basically rebuild those stocks. The question is always going to be, how long do you do this for? And looking to the future, the trajectory that we're on for climate change, there are going to be more large fires like this. And the tricky thing is every time we have a really large fire and it impacts ash forests, it sets the clock back to zero. So, you know, there's 80,000 hectares of forest out there that is young. And so it means it's vulnerable for the next 15 years. So if there's another bushfire of whatever size, it's going to be an issue again. So it is something that we need to be strategic about in saying, well, how much seed are we going to have in stocks just in case? And, you know, how we what to, to recover these forest types. But it's it's a tricky thing to plan for. When do you think we'll be able to see or you'll be able to see the results of the reseeding that you've done? We've already got some results that have come in. So plenty of um, staff members from the Department of Environment in about nine months after the resowing were done, went out and laid out transits and counted seedlings. And it was really good to see. I think it was across about 130 sites that they sampled, they looked at. Um, I think probably about close to 90% of those had seedlings coming up from it. So that was, like, that, that was, that's good, <laughs> basically. It's just going to be a matter of monitoring that and understanding how it changes with time because for seedlings, it's not just fire, drought, herbivores. Um, there's, there's, it's not easy to be a young seedling. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. And yeah, thanks for sharing your insights and yeah, letting us know what is happening to support the regrowth of these beloved forests. Scientists in a number of fields are fascinated with cloning and as a result a lot of science gets published around the field of cloning so we often find ourselves talking about it on Lost in Science and I'm not sure if either of you remember 
when we covered the Japanese cloning breakthrough. We did cover this story. It was way back in 2014 when a top Japanese research scientist claimed to be able to clone any old kind of cell from blood cells. Do you remember this? Mm, oh, vaguely. Vaguely, yeah. What's um, happened since 2014? Well, yeah, it was massive news at the time. In the end, turned out to be basically made up. Uh, the paper uh-huh. was full of plagiarised content and the results weren't even true. So there was a big story about that which ended up not being the story of the breakthrough. It was just the story of why is this person you know, making this stuff up? And I think it's partly due to the pressure to find something in this field because of how useful it would be to be able to take an easily obtained cell like blood or skin or something like that and turn it into something else that you could then research on those cells that you've obtained. There's a lot of ethical concerns and approvals that would be avoided if you could take some cells that someone donated, say their skin cells, and just use that for your research instead of having to go and try and find specific types of tissue very limited in supply, often very difficult to get approval due to, you know, completely understandable ethical concerns about experimentation on humans. We don't really want to go down that path. So you've got cell lines from deceased patients and cell lines from various stages of human embryos that you're allowed to use under strict conditions. And all of those limitations kind of slow the research down. So This is why that false breakthrough from Japan was so exciting, I think, for scientists in that field. But probably why also all those scientists looked at it so closely, they found the holes in the story and went, hey, wait, there's something not right about this. And they sort of picked the paper to shreds. And also, unfortunately, the scientist who published it was picked to shreds by the media as well, which is a bit of a shame. But this is the high-pressure field of, of cloning research, I guess. Now, as I said, the pressure is really high to get some sort of ability to to do cloning on cells that have already turned into something. So all our cells start off as stem cells. They turn into different organs. We've got skin cells and blood cells and all these other types of cells. Once they're in that form, they don't change very easily. So the whole point of a lot of this research is to get adult cells to change into something else. So been, there's been a report from a research team at Monash University, which has been widely reported in various news outlets in what I think is a pretty misleading way, which could potentially upset people if all they do is read the headlines. And this is what I'm saying is try and read the whole article. If you ever see, you know, it's, it's very easy these days. You see a headline on social media, you read the headline, you react to what it says, and maybe you're not actually getting the whole story. So it does pay to read the articles. But even further than that, if you really want to get to the bottom of it, follow the links back through and find out what the actual research is and what it's for and what was actually found. So this Monash uh, research team are working in the field of reproductive human medicine, and they're looking for ways to model early human embryo development without using actual embryos. So that's a really tricky thing to do because if you want to do experiments on embryos, you're going to run into an ethical minefield 
or potentially a red tape brick wall or some other mixed metaphor that I haven't yeah. quite figured out yet. Also, uh, just a lack of a lack of embryos available for the research as well. Well, that's that's absolutely a problem too. So, as we know, a human embryo begins with a single cell, which is the ovum, fertilized by another cell, a sperm, to produce a fertilized egg, which then commences cell division. Now, after about five days of cell division, this becomes a, a little sort of cluster of cells called a blastocyst. And that's when the mass of dividing cells starts to get organized eventually into it's kind organs. Of a, yeah, it's kind of a, a hollow ball and part of it forms the embryo and part of it forms the placenta, is my understanding. Yeah, that's exactly right. Five days it turns into this blastocyst. At this point in a pregnancy, a blastocyst implants into the wall of the uterus and the embryo begins to develop further. Or, possibly, it seems like just as often, it doesn't do that. Mm. So the blastocyst is often the point at which a pregnancy will not take and you don't end up with a pregnancy. So in order to study what makes a blastocyst implant or not, it would be very handy to have a whole lot of blastocysts and study them directly. But obviously, this is a problem. It's not an easy thing to collect in the first place and whatever supply of them there may be uh you know again are very limited so this team at monash led by professor jose polo looked for another way and they've developed a method of producing model blastocysts using skin cells from adult human donors which is a pretty massive thing to do a whole lot of the headlines have said they've produced human embryos from skin cells, but these are not human embryos, despite the fact that the cells in them are human cells. These are not human embryos. These are effectively a model of a blastocyst. So they get the skin cells to form into blastocyst shapes. They treat the skin cells to deprogram them, to sort of rewind them from being skin cells uh and then they that's using particular tissue culture media and then they move them through a series of different tissue culture media to get them to form into clusters of cells which look a lot like what a blastocyst looks like but it's not actually a blastocyst so um what they've they've actually called these model blastocysts eye blastoids, which sounds very early two thousands to me. <laughs> um, I don't know how long they've been working on this project, but it's kind of a bit out of date, possibly. Um, I don't think they receive the internet anyway, so it's it's a question of what the eye actually stands for there. But uh, as they've said, the eye blastoids are not viable embryos. They don't continue to develop beyond mm. a few days after they've formed and it's unclear from the work that they've published whether they even could form embryos or whether they could be implanted or anything like that so this is i guess this is the thing where it does become to me like a questionable thing is understanding what is the difference between these and an actual embryo and whether they could be implanted because even a human embryo 
um, an actual human embryo is not going to develop beyond five or six days in the laboratory because it needs to be implanted to develop further and to become an actual fetus eventually down the track. Whereas these ones, I mean, we're told they, oh, they, they can never become an embryo because we won't implant them. But is if you did, what mm, would happen? What and would happen? W- yeah, why is this not the same as human cloning? I guess that's the um, that's a big question that that has to be answered, and I I assume that the ethics department at their university will be looking at that pretty closely. As you say, they're, they're uh, if they're if they're indistinguishable from genuine blastocysts that form from a fertilization event, then yeah, at what point do you say, well, they just kind of look like that, and they're not really the same as a blastocyst but they're saying at the moment well they're not really the same and i guess the question is if anyone else you know i mean this this opens up a huge field of research into blastocysts themselves because they've actually got an an effectively endless supply of them um, to work with what they're actually working on is why you know if there's some sort of physical characteristic that makes some of them fail and some of them implant that means potentially they will have to be trying to implant them at some point. Mm. So, you know, it's it's it is going to raise a lot of ethical questions. And yeah, yeah and I think um, I think that that's probably is the time there to have those discussions. And what what are the ethical implications, and what controls need to put in, put in place for this kind of research to to prevent those ethical dilemmas and the, and the problems arising? And you know, this is this is always going to be an ethical dilemma, I guess, in reproductive research and in in general in any kind of cloning related to human beings, um, at what point do we say, that's all very interesting, now let's just shut that down? Or, you know, do we we Mm. put controls in place that allow, you know, allow this kind of thing to happen? I think part of the problem, though, with all of this research is that the research moves often a lot quicker than the legislation and the policy comes with it in research institutions it is pretty amazing research i just it did it did kind of bother me a little bit that they'd been reporting it in uh in the news that i'd read kind of it's a huge step that they've made but what comes after that is going to be very interesting i think That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 
or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.